Hello everyone, this is the Shuttle Podcast podcast. Uh, I am Nick. And I am Echo. This is the podcast in which we talk about astronomy at large and space news and fun facts and etc. And we also discuss things casually. So starting off, I'm going to talk about... Hmm... There is a protoplanet in the Sol system, our solar system. So there's the major planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune. And then obviously there's the renowned uh, poster boy dwarf planet Pluto. Then there's the other dwarf planets, Haumea, Makimaki, Ares, Ceres. But uh, I was on the some NASA website, there's a bajillion of them. Uh, the other day it was a little model of our solar system that you could interact with and I saw there was an object on the model, one of the larger objects on the model and you, when you hover over it it says protoplanet and this caught my attention because if NASA considers considers the if NASA considers this to be a protoplanet then that must mean that there's a great deal of evidence suggesting that it will form into a planet over the next multiple billion years or so. I'm not actually sure what the timeline looks like for the formation of a planet. I would assume a billion or two years, multiple billions. This protoplanet is called Vesta. It's really just a very hefty asteroid. Its mean diameter is 525.4, give or take 0.2 kilometers, which is 326 miles. Pretty dang small for a planet. Aren't you a little short for a star? Oh, did I get the measurements wrong? Oh, no. Uh, I was going to reference a Star Wars quote. Uh, Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? But I didn't know how to incorporate it with a protoplanet. And then Ceres is the next size up. That's the smallest of the minor planets in our solar system. And its mean diameter is 939.4 kilometers, so 583.7 miles. And Vesta is the brightest asteroid visible from Earth, so potentially you could view it with a telescope. I actually have never operated a telescope except to look at the moon, so I don't actually know how to find objects such as that. That's interesting. How how far out is it? I actually don't know. (laughs) Uh, That's... I looked it up in a couple different sources, and either either that information was not available, or I neglected to write it down. That's interesting, because um, the only context that I've heard protoplanet before is uh, in, say, a protoplanetary disk, where it's a newly formed star, and it has a bunch of matter around it that's not necessarily in the form of a planet. Um, I, for some reason, that made me assign myself a, a block of, say, say a time frame that planets couldn't form anymore, which obviously now I know is wrong, but <laughs> no, that, that is very interesting, Vesta. I don't, I don't know a great deal about the formation of planets, but if NASA considers it a protoplanet, I mean, NASA's like, like the authority as far as space news goes or authenticity of 
factual information outside of academic journal publications, which I suppose may or may not be more authentic than NASA publications, depending on the method in which they're sourcing their information. But um, the point is that this is really cool, and I thought it was really interesting. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have something? Oh, yes. Actually, what I told you earlier, dear followers of our various social media outlets, uh, probably especially Twitter, I, Echo, will be touring the historic uh, site where Pluto was discovered, the Lowell Observatory, in the next coming week. And I will be posting about that incrementally uh, once this episode gets out. So um, feel free to follow our Twitter and look for that. I won't be associating fun facts with uh, the various things that I think are very interesting about the place. I will not, unfortunately, uh, be going into the Clark Refractor because that would put me out 500 or so dollars, but (laughs) um, whatever pictures I get, I will definitely share with you all. Um, And Do we, how many Twitter followers do we even have? Me and my partner. (laughs) 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 However. I'm not even following it, my gosh. However, if this, uh, if this piques any of your interests, it may grow to more than that. (laughs) Correct. uh, That that will be in a description of the, that will be in the, in an about section here. I think that'll be I also look forward to seeing the photos myself, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> um, it should be uh, it should be pretty cool. So I'll be able that to spend where, a, a decent Is that where you're time. considering going to university then? That is yes. How much math do you think you'll need for that? For for what? Uh, for an astrophysics degree, is it just calc one through four? Um, the scariest part of astrophysical math for me is the amount of track you have to keep of the various little nuances in every equation almost every equation forgive me hmm. um however that should be better with practice but uh, yeah i'm see. sure shall we move on to the next point you had one about pluto that might fit well i don't know sure can... um on the topic of an observatory in which pluto was discovered i actually have a point today about why Pluto is red. If you've ever seen a Pluto, it has very large red tidbits, which makes it a very beautiful planet, of course. Um, I actually had it as my wallpaper for a while because it was, is such an aesthetically pleasing planet. And obviously Mars is considered to be the red planet. And on Mars, the coloring agent is iron oxide, which is more commonly known as rust. On Pluto, however, the color is caused by hydrocarbon molecules that are formed when ultraviolet radiation from the sun interacts with methane from the atmosphere, and the sun creates compounds called tholins, which drop to the ground to form a reddish gunk. And, uh, even more interestingly, the, quote, Lyman-alpha radiation, unquote, glow is diffused through the atmosphere to fall from all directions onto Pluto. So the hydrocarbon molecules can form on the dark side of the planet as well. And I personally find that to be 
much more interesting <laughs> than Rust. Because oh, you're, you're so used to seeing Rust on Earth as well, probably. If you've ever been to a place with Rust. <laughs> pretty place pretty much rust. anywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, also, the process of iron rusting is more simplistic than mm, hydrocarbons. hydrocarbons yeah. I mean, the ultraviolet radiation hitting methane, turning methane into hydrocarbons, into tholins, into gunk that that falls to the planet's surface. Mm. And then, obviously, parts of it are just... I don't even know what they're composed of. I don't think anyone does, but <laughs> we'll find out. That's the mm. exciting part. We will find out. Um, let's see, let's see. I will go ahead and uh, congratulate NASA Juno. On August 5th, 2011, NASA's Juno spacecraft launched on a five-year interplanetary journey that took it to the giant planet Jupiter. August 5th, 2011 to 2021 makes 10 years, so happy 10th birthday to the Juno spacecraft's wonderful mission at exploring the red planet. Uh, we have received much, much many. Correct. <laughs> If any of you may recall, I know I was super excited about this. The This was the spacecraft that went semi-viral um, when it was being developed, uh, in that there were uh, three minifigures that went aboard. One of Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei, the pioneer of teles telesco telescopy, <laughs> telescopic astronomy, and the Roman god Jupiter next to his sister wife, Juno. Um, this has observed many things, including the great, famous Great Red Dot, um, along with several moons around Jupiter. Um, congratulations to Juno. And congratulations to Juno. Full send. Long live the mission. Long live the mission. What's its uh, life expectancy? Well, um, it does not say on this article, but it does have upcoming deadlines up to 2024 where it will make encounters with various moons, including uh, in, including cool. Io and uh, Europa, actually, in 2022. Oh, that's fun. Those are two Europa of my has moons. quite a bit of buzz talk. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not actually sure why. I think there was something about life below the ice or something. Right, yeah. Um, it, it is intriguing because of the amount of uh, liquid water that is geothermally heated to the right temperature to support uh, organic life as we know it, uh, as well as a very, very thin yet still noticeable oxygen atmosphere. You, my friend, are well educated in the ways of astronomy. Go Juno! Go Juno! On the topic of there being water on moons, they have detected the possible presence of water on the dayside mm. surface of our moon. And this was confirmed by NASA's Stratospheric Observatory for the Infrared Astronomy, SOFIA, in 2020. The study's authors were Bjorn Davidson and Sonia Hosini. Observations of the lunar surface show that the amount of water decreases before noon and increases in the afternoon, which would indicate that the water is moving from one side to the other throughout the day. To test the theory that shadows play a role in the water being released and removed from the moon's surface and exosphere, Hosini is leading a team developing small sensors to measure 
very faint signals of ice and water. The Hatrodine OH Lunar Miniaturized <laughs> Spectrometer, or HOMES, is being developed to be used on a small stationary lander that may be sent to the moon. They will detect measurements of hydroxyl, which is a molecular cousin of water. And I thought this was interesting that um, water could continually be evaporating into the moon's exosphere and then resublimating onto the surface of the moon as the shadow, as the shadows change throughout the day. Um, it's a very interesting discovery, and they want to, they want to mobilize the modules quickly, because the moon is receiving a lot of activity from various rovers and other operations conducted on the surface of the moon by various countries. And the goal, I don't have a direct quote, but one of the study's authors just said that their goal is to send the rovers up before a great deal of disturbance happens to the surface because it could affect the amount of water evaporating into the moon's exosphere. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. The, um, I remember reading about that and getting super excited. Give give it a couple of years. There's going to be so much cool science done on the moon. Hopefully, including that, we I believe we knew about the dark, the the night side of the moon, being able to contain water ice. But yeah, this, I remember this shadow. These shadows were especially interesting because of, I, I suppose, because nobody would have guessed. <laughs> well, evidently they guessed and they were correct. The mm. scientific method. Never the scientific method. Except when he dies. <laughs> Make a guess until it's wrong. Do what you must because you can. We will be scientists, my friend. <laughs> Alright. After one scrub, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus spacecraft has arrived at the ISS successfully, carrying an assortment of science experiments, as well as food, uh, among other things, which Nick uh, enlightened me. <laughs> According to an email from NASA I got, it says that the spacecraft arrival brings more than 8,200 pounds of science experiments, crew supplies, hardware for future spacewalks, and an order of pizza. I, I, I haven't heard of any instance where astronauts on the ISS have received quite such time-sensitive food but um <laughs> yeah i would say that honestly, they uh they got it for free because it did not arrive in 15 minutes hopefully the taste reduction that one suffers in zero gravity did not inhibit that experience very much but i i for one i would love a pizza in space it sounds awesome well regardless of the taste reduction it had to be a whole lot better than rations i then what rations i could not imagine eating uh, like yeah pre-prepared rations every single day i mean yeah i'm sure they're getting paid big money though so big money plus (laughs) a a really cool job do you know what yeah do you know what pizzeria happened to be responsible for this no clue let me see if it gives me the information i mean if it is a corporate thing it would be a hell of a pr stunt nope does not say i see well at any rate that's it. <laughs> Just at any rate. At any else. rate, yeah. Anyway, space pizza. Space pizza. That could be in the uh, episode name, space pizza. Oh yeah, that's catchy. <laughs> Too bad that 
I forgot I forgot to put the stupid space squid in the uh, first episode. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think there were varying titles in the first episode. I didn't. I don't actually I know what stuck I. With yours. I know that I the one on YouTube own. contradicts, conflicts yeah. with the one on everywhere else. Yep. I don't, um, that that would be my fault. <laughs> it's not necessarily a fault. Nobody cares. Yeah. As long as it says episode one. Um, mm-hmm. Let me actually view what the. I hope I did not. <laughs> I hope I did not put space squid in the first episode. Rover <laughs> selfies. Okay, I am safe. Uh, there we go. Rover selfies. Anyway, moving on to the next point. The rise in oxygen on early Earth has been linked to the changing rotation rate of the early Earth. Uh-huh. The day length was possibly as brief as six hours during the planet's infancy. And oh, wow. when increasing day length gradually slowed over time, which made the days longer, boosted the amount of oxygen released by photosynthetic cyanobacteria. Which is some of the first organisms to emerge on the planet. It's blue-green algae, um, which is considered a pest today for the most part. <laughs> the bane of aquariumists, aquarium aquarium enthusiasts. Um, and they, uh, according to lead authors Judith Klatt of the Max Planck Institute and Arjun Chenu of the Leibniz Center for Tropical Marine Research. So these are uh, marine biologists um they found that longer day length increases the amount of oxygen released by photosynthetic microbial mats at the bottom of lake huron that's a great lake isn't it i i think that's one of the great lakes in canada i'm not entirely sure the earth is said to be 4.54 billion years old and i do not have that memorized that's crazy that's hard to even imagine and it makes me wonder if the earth is still slowing i i I believe it is lest i i heard from anybody but i wonder what the uh, rate is i mean obviously from a 24 point decimal hour yeah trillions of an inhabitant it seems (laughs) it seems insane that um life as we know it endured a day that was four times (laughs) as fast as ours it's not really life as we know it but life is Algae yeah, life is algae knows, knows it. <laughs> Hopefully algae knows itself. That would be... I, I believe that would be something Sent, that disqualifies sentience. it from being alive. <laughs> if it does not self-preserve, then we have a problem. But my mind automatically defaults to some some rapidly spinning Earth-sized planet, per, rocky world perhaps around another star that would live life totally different from us. The algae people? Or just perceive time totally different from us. Yeah, and then there's obviously there's I do wonder, planets, um, which are just if insane. there was like an intelligent race of humanoids on a planet that spun so quickly, um, and we like met them or something. <laughs> diplomatic relations would be impossible because they'd sleep like every three hours. Yeah, be even harder than scheduling an episode. <laughs> recording. <laughs> so much harder, my gosh. <laughs> For those of you at home, there's a two-hour difference between us, but we have such varying lifestyles that often on my end, admittedly, there will be things that get in the way of actually getting a recording done. But I believe this is the fourth time I'm that we've sat down to record this episode. Um, we break it up into Goodness chunks me. as well. But A planetary star system 35 light years away 
named L98-59, is home to some of the most interesting exoplanets that we've ever discovered, one of which being the smallest ever discovered yet. One of the Earth-like planets discovered around this system is less than half the mass of Venus. Uh, this is rather interesting because it's such a small rocky world, we haven't really been able to find such things around giant bright stars. So, um, if these observations are confirmed, there was a certain number of uncertainties about the discoveries in this planetary system with the uh, TESS. Uh, I think that that would be phenomenal. I mean, even at some point, I've talked about the James Webb Telescope and how that's able to see so much better around other stars. If that were able to discover, say, second Mercuries, I, that would be amazing. And then there's obviously the the desire to know as much about an outside system as we do the inside system, because we don't know how similar we are to the rest of the universe. <laughs> and, I'm, I mean... The possibilities are endless, but really, it's the more we know, the more at home it feels. Sure. If that makes any sense. I'm actually not familiar with the size of Venus in comparison to the average size of a planet. I mean, assuming that we even have a hmm. accurate estimation of what average for a planet looks like. <laughs> but... <laughs> well. As far as the rocky worlds go, it is on par with Earth, actually. It has the same surface gravity. Um, Just smaller to, diameter. I mean, nine, yeah, nine point something meters per second squared. It's, it stays within that uncertainty. But uh, I have another fun fact about Venus, but it's not related at all to the exoplanets. But I learned that it spins backwards, which is why its day takes so long. It spins backwards. Interesting. So are you saying that all the planets in the solar system spin the same direction? Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Uh, that, that, I, that I know of, that I remember off the top of my head. On the topic of Venus, evidence of volcanoes <laughs> on Venus have been found in old Magellan spacecraft data. It is not known... Magellan? That was the lander, correct? Say what? That was the lander, correct? I'm not entirely sure. Or... I believe it, it collected... Uh, stereotopography data so i believe it would be an orbiter to collect topography but um i don't know anything so i could be wrong oh it was a yeah it was not, not a lander. lander okay yeah that's what i would have guessed anyway it is not known if the geologic activity was in the past centuries or within tens of millions of years from today but that is considered geologically recent it has been 31 years since the Magellan spacecraft entered orbit around Venus. According to Planetary Science Institute Megan Russell and Katherine Johnson, uh, Johnson says the question of whether Venus has had geologically recent or ongoing volcanism has been an enduring enigma from the Magellan mission. We still have no smoking gun regarding this, but more and more lines of evidence suggest a recently and potentially currently active planet. Russell says, instead of looking at the surface of the volcano or flows, we look at how the volcano deforms the ground around it. In response to the weight of the volcano, the ground around it bends, like flexing a plastic ruler. And this was performed while Russell was a grad student, so it is a uh, pretty solid way to kick off her career. This is a very phenomenal piece of research. 
this uh, high-resolution stereo topography data set was generated by other researchers to look at volcanoes at the edge of a 350-kilometer surface across the Ara Mighty Corona. And a corona in this context is a circular feature surrounded by a ring of cracks, and they are thought to be large faults. Some coronae, lava flows, and volcanoes are observed in these structures, just not active. So time will tell what hmm. the research yields. Very, very cool. I, I found it to be uh, very exciting. Um, yeah. Because for so long now, we've just thought that Venus has been geologically dead, right? So. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to think of it similar to Mars, but yeah, the fact that we know now, or at least have a lead to knowing. Is, There's evidence, yeah. It's awesome. Venusian volcanoes. It's a cool two-word set. <laughs> All right. Should I talk about um Lowell? I, I know I said I was going to do a thing with it, but that the observatory really work. So, yeah, I, I can I can just talk about my experience sure. now. Right. For those well, of you that just heard about it a few minutes ago in the podcast, we're speaking about this now on a different day after he has visited mm-hmm. um, the observatory. So, uh, he's about to yes. share about it. Well, let's see where to start. Um, some of you may have received the hint on Twitter, uh, but though I did not express expressly tell you that uh that is a picture of and it'll be on the video too that is a picture of the clark refractor it is a 42 inch or was a 42 inch telescope that was kind of lowest pride and joy it was the biggest one on the campus for a long while until the mirror ended up cracking but if any of you do not know lowell is uh one of the scientists behind the observatory that discovered pluto it was in the early 1900s when calculations were given out that there was a certain place in the sky to look to account for the irregularities in uh, Uranus and Neptune's orbits. That place ended up being five degrees off from where Pluto actually was, which was amazing math. But all that aside, touring the facility, it was amazing. You got to... I, I went on what's what was called the Dark Skies Tour. You got to... while it was dark, and there were red lights everywhere, so there wasn't a lot of pollution to get rid of the stars you'd see in the night sky. Mm-hmm. You got to walk by the office that the Eureka moment where Pluto was realized to exist happened, where it was basically confirmed that it was a, a body in the solar system, and a quite large one at that, relative to the rest of the dwarf planets. But after that, you walk past and find yourself on a one-inch to one-million-mile scale trail of the solar system where you start with the closely bunched together rocky planets and then end up near the asteroid belt and Jupiter and all the way to Pluto which granted is not a planet but very interesting scale wise to see the actual uphill walk that it took to get there that walk leads right directly out to the Clark refractor which I've just talked about and then from there my favorite favorite part We got to go to an open deck that was built in 2019, so it's their most recent part of this observatory, and there was a a couple refractor telescopes, some with eyepieces, some that were operated by a uh, camera and a computer, operated by 
a computer with a camera, rather, sorry, including the biggest, now biggest, telescope on the campus, a Dobsonian refractor with a 32-inch mirror diameter. I looked uh, myself through it to see the Swan Nebula, which was the object of the hour. Um, however, probably more deep space objects are visible through that beautiful, beautiful telescope. Yeah, it had the, the fan cooling off the mirror and everything. But um, there was that. There was a couple other where you got to look at the gas giants. There was one where you got to see a planetary nebula, uh, and one where it was actually so versatile that you could photograph the core of the Andromeda galaxy. Really? Jeez, it's crazy. Yeah. I thought the yeah. nebula was crazy, but the core of the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> Is it crisp? Yeah, granted, it was Yeah, it was a very high exposure shot, um, and it had quite a few stars, because, you know, you need a lot of stacking to actually see the central black hole of anything yeah it, it it was it was legit you could see the that massive you know milky way sized galaxy um it was it was awesome and then from from there we went to a very calming uh astronomy tour basically you know, just pointing out where prominent stars were and giving mythologies behind certain constellations the things that will rock minds if you haven't heard the fact for a while it like the the North Star Polaris being eventually shifted over over the course of twenty four thousand years to Vega, um, just you know it was it was amazing. I loved it so much. Um, that was pretty much the end of it. But I did end up nagging a very very adorable stuffed animal of the Polaris Trinary Star System and the book Chasing New Horizons, which I will be reading for quite a bit. I can already tell that I'm probably going to definitely recommend it. <laughs> yeah, it had a Polaris, what, Polaris A, Polaris B, and Polaris AB, which is a yellow giant, and two uh, blue dwarf, blue white dwarf main, main sequence stars. Is it anthropomorphized? It has a face, and it has arms and legs, um, and it lights up. It's, I, I just love it so much. I, I gave it to my partner, actually. She's <laughs> enjoying it a lot. But Are you both space fanatics? Um, she is a better biologist, and she uses that to her advantage whenever it comes to things. But yeah, she knows stars better than I do, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I had to look up quite a few stars when she was telling me about her favorite ones. Uh, though... If any of you would like to look online, look up Zeta Ophiuchi, uh, Z-E-T-A space O-P-H-I-U-C-H-I. It is a beautiful star with actually a trail of uh, hydrogen behind it that makes it look hmm. quite like a bow. Yeah, tangential to Lowell, but I definitely recommend you look it up, uh, listeners at home. Listeners at home, I do not have any favorite star systems because i am not half as educated on astronomy as you are <laughs> i run an astronomy podcast but <laughs> the extent of my astronomy knowledge is encyclopedic so i'm not incredibly well versed i used to know all the different types of stars and their temperatures and stuff but that oh, has nice. been lost lost with time um so my next topic is uh, the world's first reprogrammable satellite. On July 30th, on board the Ariane 5 rocket, it lifted off from French Guiana. Guinea. I don't know how to pronounce it. 
Ariane 5, French Arian. Guinea. Okay, French what? French Guinea. Guinea, okay, Guano. It's funny. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, most satellites are hardwired to serve one function, but the Utalsat Quantum allows users to tailor communication to their needs, and it mm. can be reprogrammed from a fixed distance of 35,000 kilometers, which is 21,700 miles. I did not do that in my head. Um, which allows it to respond to changing communication and uh, various demands needed by the users. So I believe it's just a communication satellite, but reprogrammable is still very interesting. I don't yeah. believe it's pioneering any new technology so much as it is just the first time that it's happened. You said it's primarily a communication satellite, right? Uh, evidently, yeah. So, I mean, that would be tailoring that to specific needs. What would that look like, I wonder? I don't know much about Space communication, <laughs> evidently. Well, it could just be radio but. communication, uh, mm. internet communication. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps it can be reprogrammed for television, assuming that satellite television will be around. In a, mm. um, television is dying. It's so weird. Like, I grew up with, like, those big box TVs, and there just weren't streaming oh, services. Yeah. And <laughs> The ones that, like, you would touch, and then you get a static Yeah, shock. those ones. I loved <laughs> being the static shock. I'd, like... I'd, like, turn them off deliberately so I could just run my hand across <laughs> it. Um, one time I put a magnet up to one, and then... Uh, oh, it, you <laughs> scientist. <laughs> it made a giant green spot, and I was, like, so excited, so I went to my parents, and I was like, look at what I did to the TV. Um, it fixed itself after a few hours, but that was... I... They were really mad at me. Mm. <laughs> Um, as far as, yeah, I don't think TV satellites are going to be around very long, though, because TV is a dying industry. Yeah, most of the income that cable companies make are from, actually, the, their internet-providing services, which is kind of Really? Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, let, me, let me double check that, because... I mean, it makes sense, right? They provide internet so they can provide cable. It's the same concept, really. You're granted, like cable television is like sub hd it's like 480p mm. <laughs> yeah let's see i remember i went to a friend's apartment um there were two of us and then myself two people and then myself uh just in the apartment hanging out and this was a while ago um there was cable television on so we were going to go do something with the night or do something enjoyable and then space uh space mm, what's is it space jam no the with uh, the Lola Bunny basketball or, oh, yeah, or the Space, old, Jam. Space Jam. Okay. Yeah. And um, we sat down and watched the whole thing because my friend wanted to see Lola Bunny. It's <laughs> funny. Um, and then that was the whole night. So that was fun. Is it the new one or the old the one? The old one. Uh, yes. He was really mad about how Pristine they changed Lola Bunny. <laughs> Goodness. Made her, I think they just made her less sexually desirable. I mean, would. Warner Brothers really want to make another generation of people whose first crush was Lola Bunny. I don't know <laughs> right, yeah, that's, that's how the furries true. began. <laughs> actually, the furries, uh, you might not know this, but the furries began at Star Trek convention. Hmm. I only remember reading it in passing, but evidently um, that was when the community first came to provident, pro prominence. Hmm. Um, I guess evidently the theme of different species coming together to put away their differences was taken too literally. That's interesting, though. I'm trying to remember the name of the, 
the cat people from Star Trek. That's what popped in my head immediately after you said that. Cat people? Oh, Kate. Anyway, the ISS, right? That's your next topic? It sure is. Alright, well, just to update you guys, right now we're in a little bit of a tug-of-war between the thrusters firing on both the science module and Nauka. That's from Mission Control Communicator Drew Morgan telling Drew, telling U.S. astronauts from Houston at uh, around uh, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time when the Nauka vehicle's thrusters were unexpectedly misfired, tilting the ISS as much as 45 degrees around its center of rotation. Very fortunately, the problem was fixed. Uh, however, it was over an hour that that happened, and I can only imagine how scary it would be to be an astronaut or to be one responsible of controlling the... As far as things go, it would be incredibly stressful to be someone on the space station just knowing that... I mean, at that point, once it's spinning out of control, you basically know that your life is over, even if it's not and everything's fine. Like, that's the only thing going through your mind, I'm sure. Well, I'm not an astronaut, but... There's only, like, a thin layer of metal between them and death, basically. Um, oh, well, fiberglass, too, and whatever the other stuff is. Yeah. And uh, the, um, I, assuming that it wasn't some arbitrary and uh, entirely entirely coincidental te- techno- technological error, I imagine that the person who put together the system that malfunctioned uh, lost their entire career because, obviously, the <laughs> space agency would need someone to... Blame some scapegoat to shift liability off of themselves. So, well, hopefully it wouldn't be just one person <laughs> responsible for an entire yeah. thruster. We'll see. I mean, well, we won't <laughs> see. We'll never know. But, yeah. well, ha- yeah. From a rotational standpoint, the Nauka module generally docks in a place where it's uh, easy to rotate. You have the axis with the solar panels and the radiators, and then you have Nauka being less of a distance away from the center of the center of mass of the space station. So it would be easier to turn um, <laughs> on, on a separate axis. Don't come after me. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. It, when was this? So the fuster that, um... doesn't necessarily need to fire at full thrust. This was on... Oh, so this would have been July 29th. July 29th was a, a Thursday. Oh, okay. So the article was updated a week later... NASA's official update which would have been um, was July 29th, 22nd. and then there was August 3rd, um, huh. where they... August 3rd was when they confirmed that the station is in good shape and operating normally. Um, I see. 45 degrees out of attitude. That's crazy. As far as things yeah. go... Um, it's pretty fast. That's, um, what, two-thirds of a degree now per minute? So it's not... I imagine the astronauts did not feel the uh, spin, but... Well, if they were near the distance from the, the the center of rotation, then they probably wouldn't have. So if they were if they were anywhere on the the axis with the solar panels, sure. then I doubt they would have. Or if they just stood still for an exceeding amount of time, then they would have seen the <laughs> the walls sort of <laughs> climb around them. Um, but I doubt that wouldn't be normal. They're in the little. Because uh, they don't know if they're climbing or not. I watched the I watched a tour of the ISS once, and there was this little bit that they could climb down in that showed the Earth. They could just watch the Earth spinning um, uh, yes, below the them. Coppola. I imagine they could just watch that slowly <laughs> move out of view of the window. That hey guys, I'm seeing something weird. <laughs> crazy. Probably also one of the external cameras. Oh yeah, I'm sure they monitor a, that. 
of fire from Nelka, which means science in Russian. Oh, really? Where are you now? Nelka. I will not remember that. Is that all the material that we were going to cover then? I believe so. I, I guess I, I suppose I could plug this. I'm going to be making a Kerbal Space Program tutorial in the upcoming future, probably over the next week. I have it all scripted. If you want, you could stay tuned for that. Also, um, also while we're plugging things, please join the Discord server. You can talk to Echo and me server. Um, in person and, and, and buy our merch. Um, <laughs> Excuse we're, you. We're quite that, we're quite that famous. Yeah. Renowned. And by merch, we mean that you can go to a t-shirt store and buy a shirt and put a design on it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> go to a t-shirt, t-shirt, I can't talk. Go to a t-shirt store and just think, think of me when you buy it and... <laughs> think of our voices. Think of our voices. Just imagine how happy, how happy, how proud of you we are for... Um, <laughs> For supporting us in spirit, if not, if not financially, <laughs> who knows if this podcast blows up, we might have a Patreon. We're getting a lot of downloads, but I question if those decreased after the last episode. Hopefully, um, if someone subscribes to the podcast, it automatically downloads the podcast to their device. If they're on iTunes yeah, so, or Google Podcasts, so so beware. Yeah, once this episode comes out, you will hear my nice, crisp, beautiful, uh, honey voice. Right, yeah, so the link for that will be in the various descriptions that this podcast will be uploaded of of the websites that this podcast will be uploaded. The link to, to. the Discord, not the Kerbal Space Program. The link thing. to the Discord, yeah. right? Yeah. Cool. All right, so it's Nick and Echo. Um, signing off. Farewell. Farewell. Live long and prosper, dear listeners.